Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. So I am preaching this morning. I got a text message from Chris early in the week and said, any chance he could preach for me this week? He, Chris had two funerals as well as an overnight with the homeless shelter this week. And he's like, I'm going to be, you know, a wreck. <laughs> so I agreed that I would preach for him this week. And so that wasn't planned. But um, before I start into my sermon, though, I would like to show you a little video um, that I put together yesterday. I had the privilege to travel with actually two plane loads of us from Saldatna, Anchorage, um, or traveled out to Koyuk, where they um, dedicated their new church that Samaritan's Purse has been building this summer. Um, and it was a blessed gathering of um, several of our Covenant Church um, people from Shaktulik and Elam and Unalakleet and all over the Norton Sound and Bethel um, traveled there for this really special occasion. So I just wanted to share a little glimpse of that with you. This is about a two minute long video. catch a little of that um, from that video. The church was packed. Um, you can see 
all the seats were filled. The side room was packed, the standing room only of people. The community came out and forced not just the Quick community, but also the larger Norton Sound community. It was a really blessed time. And I felt like this would be an appropriate introduction for the message this morning, which is entitled, A Worshiping People. Um, last week, Chris's title was A Holy People. And this week's um, section of Exodus focuses us on worship for Israel, for God's people to be a worshiping people. It was really interesting, um, as I had been preparing for this sermon, um, the dedication lit litany that we went through, um, I just want to read parts of it. Um, this is what uh, Curtis led, um, the dedication part, and together, we would say together, we dedicate this building. And then, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'll read sections of it. And then uh, Curtis would read this, for the worship of God, for the ministry of the word, for the proclamation of the gospel. And then we'd say, we dedicate this building for the uplifting of the church and administration of the holy sacraments for recognizing the dignity of work in all vocations, for the blessing of all people, young and old, for those who solemnize their marriage vows, and for sanctifying of home and family, for comfort for those who grieve, for strength for those who are undergoing trials. We dedicate this building for sympathy and fellowship with the needy, for cultivation of love toward all people, for essential unity with all believers in Christ. We dedicate this building and on and on. And it was just a beautiful um, time to, to think about the, the place of the church as a worshiping people and how worship encompasses a very large movement, action. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. Now, I'll tell you that I didn't know exactly what the text was when Chris said yes. And when I started reading it, I was like, oh, no. I have no idea how to preach on this text um, because a large part of it is a listing of covenantal ordinances and laws. Um, so it really required me to study, to study this week because Chris, and we have an outline of where we're going throughout the, throughout the year and we have our text that we'll be preaching on and kind of a general theme. And so Chris had by this three-chapter section, Worship. But when I first just glanced through it, I was like, I don't quite get how, what this has to do with the large theme of worship. But oh my goodness, I have learned and I'm excited to share with you um, that this is actually one of the pinnacle um, passages of the Exodus narrative for us around worship. And so hopefully by the end of this sermon, you will also understand that better. But I feel like I'm just, you know, when, you're, when I was teaching in rural Alaska, when I was a first-year teacher, I knew like all I had to be was like one chapter ahead, right? So I just tell you that what I'm sharing, of course, is things that I've known before throughout Scripture, but this is really a new, a new um, revelation for me of how this works in Exodus, and I hope that I'm able to share that effectively with you. So the, the truth is that as you look at Exodus, that Exodus' central theme, the central theme from beginning to end, prior to this study, I would have said it's deliverance. But after studying, I see, as many of the commentators say, that Exodus' central theme is that Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
delivered his people out of slavery. Yes, deliverance is a huge theme. Out of slavery and bondage, oppression. But that was in order that they might be a people, a nation, set apart, marked primarily and uniquely by their worship, their worship of the one true God. Of all the books in the Bible, the word worship is used more in the book of Exodus than any other book. The second to that is Deuteronomy, where the covenant and the things of Exodus are repeated for the new generation who are getting ready to enter into the promised land. And so they too are reminded of their place as a worshiping people. The next book that has the most, almost just one verse less that deals with worship is Revelation. How appropriate that that book that prepares us, the generation of the church, for what it looks like to live in Christ now and in end times and as we look to see the kingdom of God being fully revealed. It's about worship, worship, worship. So today our scripture section is sections 21, really the end of 20 through 24. And I'm not going to read a lot from that more towards the end. But today, I want to pull what I've found as what I would call like a theology of worship, that what we see in Exodus is the foundation and the groundwork for everything else that will come in Scripture around the theme of worship. Now, when I, um, uh, when I, Curtis and I were younger, there was a season of time when we would host a young adult camp, a Bible camp in Unilacleet, was called Vision. And um, uh, we did that before we had kids, and then we had kids. And so we brought them along with us. And uh, one year, Nathan and Sharis were with us, and I think Josh was a baby, but Nathan was three going on four. And um, our son Nathan was a major thumb sucker. Thumb was in his mouth, and he was always twirling his hair, especially if he was really thinking about something. He'd have the thumb in the mouth, and he'd be twirling his hair, and he'd be thinking, and you could tell, you could totally tell. So we loaded up our suitcases, our sleeping bags, into the back of the truck and got into the truck to drive back to town, and Nathan was going. He had that thumb in his mouth, and he was thinking. So I said, hey, Nate, what are you, what are you thinking about? You know, what's on your mind? Because I knew something was there. He said, Mom, when I grow up, I want to be a worship guy like Tom. <laughs> I want to be a worship guy. So Tom mutes. Some of you know Tom. He uh, has led worship here in the past, and he was one of our young worship leaders that week. And Nathan was especially taken by Tom and decided he wanted to be a worship guy like Tom. That next year at ACC, Nathan decided he too, because Curtis would often lead the singing with the college students, that Nathan decided he was bringing his ukulele, which was his guitar, and was joining Curtis as a worship guy. And so we have pictures and videos of little three-year-old Nathan with his ukulele just, oh, strumming away, you know, singing, not, you know, not at all on tune, but just acting that out, right? So it was really fun. Now, Nathan has not continued in leading singing, right? Um, but I would say that he's grown into be a worship guy. Now, it's looked a little different than Tom Mute, but I want to say that I'm hoping that at the end of this sermon, you have a broad understanding, picture, maybe even a new revelation of worship. Often we say, oh, now we want the worship team to come up. And we kind of mean like the music 
team that's leading us in worship through song. And that is definitely a part of it. But today's sermon is less about um, modes and different aspects of how we worship, but a larger theological foundation that gives, uh, that gives substance and gives guidance to why we do what we do as we worship together. All right, so um, we're going to look at some sections earlier. Um, uh, I, I just want to review a little where we've been. So um, Exodus, the first part of Exodus, we've been in this series. We see, um, we learn about Moses, and we learn that the, the people of Israel are oppressed. Um, they've forgotten about Joseph, who was their leader in Egypt, where things were good, and the people, the Hebrews have been enslaved, <coughs> excuse me, for over 400 years and God hears his people's cry, and he is um, set out a plan to deliver them. And that plan includes Moses. We know the story of Moses as a baby um, was put into the Nile River to um, escape being killed by Pharaoh's, um, his regime, and was saved miraculously out of that. And we see some of his younger life, how he uh, kills someone and then flees into the desert um, to, to escape the, the judgment of that. And while he's been gone about 40 years shepherding in the desert, um, one day he is at a place called Horeb, Mount Sinai. He's by Mount Sinai. And he sees this burning bush. The Lord speaks to him out of the burning bush and calls him that he is going to use him to lead, to rescue his people out of slavery. Now we have, then we have the dialogue between Moses and God about, well, who are you? Who will I say you called me? And who am I? And I want to just um, uh, take us back, because this is a really key scripture for what we're going to talk about today. So um, I think we have it on the slide. So Exodus 3, 11 and 12. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you, it says plural, you all, will worship God on this mountain. So he asked them, like, who am I? You know, God didn't even, God answered his question differently than what he was asking, right? It's not about you, Moses. It's about me. And this is the sign that you will know I have sent you, is that you, after you've come out, you will worship, you all, all of the people of, of, of Israel will worship God on this mountain at this place. Now, I used to be an English teacher and did lots of English papers and English classes, and we would talk about literature, right? How you have, in, in many forms of literature, not all, but many forms of literature, you have this like, this uh, exposition, and then you have this rising action to a climax in the plot. And then you kind of have this denouement, they call it, right? This un un unraveling, kind of unwinding to the conclusion. I would have said prior to this study that the climax of the Exodus story was the Red Sea, right? I mean, it's powerful, it's amazing, they're being free. And that was an incredibly significant part on this rising action. But what I see is that when God spoke to Moses, he spoke of this time. This is the sign. This is it. That not only will you be delivered, but you all will worship. 
I just want to read a, a little part of one of the commentaries actually from James Bruckner on this topic. He says, Moses' personhood and the identity of Israel would be grounded in their worship of God. Even bringing the people out of Egypt would not be conclusive proof that God was with them. The proof of their success would be whether or not they worshiped God on this mountain. And the Hebrew highlights this by switching to the plural from the initial, the initial promise. Um, that all, as, we, we, as we will see in Exodus 32, the people almost did not make it. Escape from slavery was in God's eyes neither the primary measure of success nor the limit of God's involvement. Only a people who worship God could truly claim deliverance by God. So this, uh, where we're at in the story, um, from beyond here we know that um, Moses goes, the people are delivered after the plagues, many plagues. Finally the Pharaoh's hardened heart gives in, he acquiesces for a moment, sends them out, then changes his mind, follows them. They're, 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 they're bumped up against the Red Sea. The army's coming behind them, and that sea opens up with Moses' staff. They cross through, right? They're delivered in the waters, sweep away the armies of Egypt, and they are now in the desert. Now, it's important to remember that when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, his message over and over and over again was to let my people go so that they may worship me. Worship me. That was the initial call. And so that's repeated over and over again, which is part of the reason why there's more worship in that, than that text, in the book of Exodus, because it's repeated like 10 times, that very same statement. Let the people go, that they may worship me. So uh, the, the, the nation passes through. Um, but then we come to Exodus 15 and 18, which is where we were two weeks ago when I preached, when they're free, but now what? They're, now they're in wilderness. They're, they're, they're out there in a mass. They don't have food. They don't have water. And now they have to interact with God um, as, their, as their sustainer, as their, as their um, saving them, not from now oppression and slavery, but from hunger and thirst and themselves and their grumbling. And so they want to go back, and yet God shows himself. He shows himself to them um, in the cloud. Uh, in many um, amazing ways, by providing um, manna and quail, he shows them that he is Lord over all of the created, all of the created world, um, and that he is watching over them. And he also provides for Moses wisdom in how to lead by, sent, by speaking to him directly, but also sending Jethro, his father-in-law, to him and says, Moses, you need to delegate some of this responsibility. And so there we see um, Moses choosing and selecting elders that are delegated for groups of people and a kind of a, a administration that then is, he's using to help to, to govern the people. And we'll see them mentioned um, in this next section of scripture. So last week, Chris um, brought us to Mount Sinai. They are there. They've, they've left Rephidim where they were grumbling, where the water was bitter. And now they've come uh, to the Mount Sinai where they're seeing God. And uh, there's, there's the mountain. The Mount Sinai is ablaze. It's, it's loud. There's trumpets blaring. There's lightning and thunder, a cloud. It's this incredible 
uh, manifestation of, of God. Um, and then Moses is invited up into the cloud, up into the, the mountain. Now, when I studied this, I found out Moses had to go up and down Mount Sinai five times <laughs> in this section. He goes up, then God says, tell, go back down to the people and tell them to get ready for three days. And they says, Moses, come back up with Aaron. Come back up. He gives them the Ten Commandments. Now go back down. He goes back down. So <clears throat> after last week, Moses had been up twice. This week, he's up three more times to, to face, interface with God, to receive what God wants the people to know, and to go back down. So last week, um, that's where uh, Chris led us into the, the, looking at what it meant to be a, a holy people and those initial Ten Commandments that were given to the people of Israel. Now, what I would like to do now is just um, four, there's four characteristics that I've seen as I've studied this next passage. The next section, including what was before, um, takes us to where Moses goes back up onto, into the mountain and God gives him a longer, much longer list of ordinances over three chapters. And what I'd like to do is just draw some generalities, uh, uh, a framework of theology for worship around these stories. And I hope that this will all get tied together. Um, the first is that worship, it, it's about how these four things are how worship worship's connected. It's not like a definition, but these are all tied together in what is worship. The first is the relationship between worship and deliverance. Worship and deliverance. We do see that the worship of God's people came post-deliverance. Um, James Bruckner says, this text announces the theme of worship that will be repeated throughout the Exodus. The worship of the Lord culminates in the Exodus event, and the subject for the second half of the book um, will be around worship. It's no surprise that it was part of the answer to Moses' first and basic objection, that deliverance is part of it. Um, we see their deliverance, their salvation. You know, we often think of salvation and, over, and spiritualize it to a place of like, oh, salvation is about the afterlife, and yes, it is. But in the Hebrew context, they were experiencing rescue in a very, very real way from oppression, but also from starvation and from the elements and from themselves out in the wilderness. And so worship, even our worship, is related to salvation, that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we see this foundation here, and then we see it all the way in through the New Testament about how we worship that because we have been delivered, we've been rescued, we've been saved from our sins for this life and the next. The next, the second large uh, foundational principle around worship is the fear of the Lord. Now the fear of the Lord can also mean like the reverence of the Lord. And we're going to look at a scripture here in a minute that shows us it does not mean to be afraid. It, it, it talks about being worshiping and recognizing God in his rightful place, not alongside other gods. Remember the first two of the Ten Commandments talk about, you shall worship no other god. Put no other god beside me, before me, around me. You are to worship the, the Lord, me only. And they were in a, in a Near Eastern uh, cultural context where all the surrounding peoples worshipped many gods in many different ways. <clears throat> but that was not to be their way. 
and they were not to be making idols, that he was, he was the one God, and he was, not, he was the creator of all, and, and was to be worshipped as that, and that nothing that he had cre created should be worshipped as God. And so he, he puts that um, initially. But we see the fear of the Lord, a reverence for God, introduced early in the Exodus narrative. It actually starts with the midwives. Do you remember the midwives who <clears throat> were, were, were taking the Hebrew babies and rather than killing them like they were supposed to, they had been commanded to? It says that they, because of the fear of the Lord, they did not follow the command of Pharaoh. Um, their existence uh, and, and Moses' existence came in part through the fear of the Lord, their reverence in God. Now, in the Jethro account, where God sends Jethro to give Moses guidance on how to administrate, he says to choose capable men. The capable men, the definition of what's a capable man, is someone who fears the Lord and is not greedy. Fears the Lord and is not greedy. So that fear of the Lord is there. But where we really see this heightened is just after what we read last week. Um, in Chris's sermon, that's, and it's in um, chapter 20. I believe I have the scriptures up here. So they've received, they've received the first 10 commandments from God, and there's that, been that huge like pyrotechnic <laughs> uh, uh, vision of the Lord on the mountain. This is what it says. <clears throat> when the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance. This is like fear. And they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we'll listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. But Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. I want to read a, another section here from this one commentary. This text immediately reminds the reader here that the people were standing at the foot of the mountain and listening to God to deliver the Ten Commandments. The words, do not be afraid, God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning, expresses a vital theological distinction. No other passage in scripture places being afraid of God and fearing God in such obvious juxtaposition. They do come from the same Hebrew verb, to fear the Lord. But the fear of God is an essential characteristic that, of a person in right relationship with God. Fear of the Lord is sometimes translated reverence or respect. It is certainly not the same thing as being afraid. The midwives being the first to fear the Lord and Pharaoh's officials who were afraid of the Lord's judgment um, show the juxtaposition of this. This fear of the Lord includes an element of ultimate awe as well as trust in the one who inspires awe. So that element of awe, but then that trust, the trust that comes with it. And as we come to recognize and fear the Lord, um, not being afraid, but in awe and trust, we are able to enter into worship in a deeper way. We sing about this 
in one of our favorite songs, Amazing Grace. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. It's that grace that, long, that, that brings us in into relationship with an awe-inspiring God. And it's grace then, those things that we do fear, that we are afraid of, whether it's with God or with life or with circumstances, it's that grace that relieves those fears. And then we worship in a new place. Acts 9.31, we see this in the New Testament as well. It says, Then the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened. Living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. So this is a mark of the early churches. It was growing that they had this awe and reverence of God, drawn by his grace, encouraged by the Holy Spirit, and there was growth. They worshipped. Hebrews 12.28 also tells us, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Then it goes on to say, For our God is a consuming fire, which is a reference to this passage in Exodus 20-24. to 24. So we have worship and its relationship to deliverance and salvation, worship and its relationship to our reverent fear of the Lord. And the next one is the, com the connection of worship and service. In fact, the Hebrew, both the Hebrew and Greek words that are used for worship, there's a few different words. Sometimes they mean like to worship, like to bow down, like to prostrate yourself, to worship. But more often than not, they're synonymous with service, to serve. And so we see this as well. As the people come to God, he's given them the Ten Commandments, but then he expounds on them with uh, three chapters of covenant law. And I just want to, if you, as you look, we're not going to go through all these in any detail at all, but just to know that the initial um, explanation of things that, of what does it look like to be a worshiping people, not just worshiping individuals, was to have a society and, and that, was, that was regulated by the heart of God. Um, ethical ways to treat servants, to um, how do you deal with personal injuries, protection of property, social responsibility around relationships and sexuality, laws of justice and mercy, even Sabbath guidelines for how to live into the, the rest that God was providing for them. And there was some instruction around worship forms, festivals, three festivals in chapter 23, all that were, that were centered around the harvest, where they came, they brought their food, they, brought, they gave their first fruits, and they fellowshiped together. So there was some around the form of worship, but most of this was about how they lived out their worship on a daily basis in their regular ongoings of life. And Chris spoke to that last week, um, more about, about that part. But we too, our worship is called. We worship, we come together and worship in forms here. 
But this isn't the pinnacle. It's how then we go and live our lives and how we, as a people of God, express the heart of God as we, as we interact in our daily lives, in our relationships, with our property, with our things, how we treat the most vulnerable among us. And so we see that worship, in addition to a form of expressing our awe, comes as we live and as we serve. And we see the same principle in the New Testament as well. Romans 12.1 says, therefore I, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies, your life, yourself, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So we see this established in the covenant of the Old Testament and then followed in through the New Testament as well. The last area that we'll talk about today, and again, this of course is not exhaustive, but what I see clearly as we look at these passages is the relationship of worship, worship and covenant. Covenant. Um, I'm, I want to read a, a few sections actually here, but Moses goes up, he receives these instructions, he brings them back down to the people. He says before the people, this is what the Lord says. And they listen and they hear, and then they say, we will do it. We accept this covenant. And so there was some given up with a 10, the Ten Commandments, but this fuller expression, and I just want to read um, a couple of sections of this to see this relational agreement. It was a, it was in relationship. It, it was in kind of, it was structured as like a legal premise, but it was you and I are in an agreement together, and it was not forced. Um, it was offered, and they received. And we've seen other examples of covenant with Abram and Abraham before this. Um, we'll see covenants with David and beyond. And we'll also see the new covenant in blood in the New Testament. But let me just read. I just want to read short sections of this in chapter 24 of Exodus, 23 and 24. Um, let's see. We start in Exodus 23, verse 25. Worship the Lord your God. This is Moses speaking to the people. And his blessing will be on your food and water. He says, I will take away sickness from among you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all your enemies turn their backs and run. I will send the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become too desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased enough to take possession of the land. I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea and from the desert to the Euphrates River. I will give into your hands the people who live in the land and you will drive them out before you. Do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not let them live in your land or they will cause you to sin against me because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. And we will see how that plays itself out. But the covenant, God says, obey me, listen to me, receive my word, take it. And then I will do all these things. I will protect you. I will guard you. He then speaks into the covenant that he made with his, um, their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob, in the promise of that they will live in the land of Canaan. They will have that. So he reiterates that in more detail, how that's going to be. 
And not only does he say, I'm going to do this, but he's also going to care for them. He's not going to do it too fast, too much, too soon. But to, as they are strengthened and able, he will come through, bless their food, bless their lives um, in so many different ways. I also want to read a section that I don't have in, um, on a slide. But Fleck is, is important to see how this uh, played out. There's more. This is just a, that was just a short, short section of the covenantal promises. So in 24, um, the Lord says to Moses, Come up, the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and those are Aaron's sons, and 72 of the elders of Israel. Now these are the 72 now that have been selected after Jethro's advice to have capable men, men of fear the Lord, to help Moses administrate. Now when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words, so they went up and they came back down. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and the laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. This is one of the first um, places we see that God had told Moses, write this down. They had a written remembrance of this. We know he's going to give them some tablets later on with the Ten Commandments, but this was to be written down. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he sprinkled on the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant, that's what he had written down, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that God, the Lord, has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see that worship, and even their response of worship, of their bowing down, came as a result of a covenant agreement. You know, we, uh, it wasn't really a covenant. We made that dedication as far as the back and forth. And yet it was a declaring in Koyak. It was a declaring of this is what we, we the church, want this building to be used for, to be about. And you could see this. Um, it was, uh, the, of course, there were people who were there who may not, be, have not been in a church in a long time or might be a, in a, a church in the near future. But they were there and they came and they heard that this place, that the agreed upon um, ministry of that building was for many, many different things, including the worship of God in form, but also in the worship of God as the community, as it goes forth into the community. And we see here that Israel too was called into covenant, called into covenant. You know, we come to the table and we, um, we celebrate, we rehearse, we remember the new covenant in the blood that came through the blood of Christ because of his death, his life, his death, and his payment for sin on our behalf on the cross and his resurrection. And we do live under covenant as well. We know that our covenant is no longer under the law that was given to the people, but that we still are a worshiping people because of the covenant. We will see as more forms come forward. Next week, Chris will be preaching on the section of the tabernacle. Ultimately, we'll see the temple established. And we'll see worship forms being developed. But all through scripture, you'll continue to see 
that worship is closely related to deliverance, to salvation. It's closely aligned and it, it's an expression of our fear and our awe of God. It's, it's our service. It's, it's expressed and lived out in our works of service. And it's founded on covenantal relationship with the Lord. We know as we go forward that the Israelites did not, very quickly after this, they did not keep up their end of the deal. And yet God was faithful to continue to bring them back to themselves and ultimately in the covenant that he had with David to come, that Jesus the Messiah would come to redeem the people. So we'll see as worship forms go that no, it's not just individual. Yes, we worship as individuals, but that we're, we're also called to be a community of people. We'll see that worship becomes, it's called, it's, it should be a regular part, a rhythmic part of our life. And we'll take different forms in different seasons, just as our festivals did. But there will always be an element of remembering, remembering who God showed himself to be to the people of Exodus, but also who he's shown himself to be to us in our life, through our salvation, and the ways he shows himself to us day after day in his provision. And it's also, you'll see, a time of rejoicing. Rejoicing as well. There's often food involved as we go forward in the scriptures to see. Um, and I saw that yesterday, even as we were in Quick. I saw, that was the biggest potluck I've ever, ever seen. We probably, there was food for, there were probably 175 people there. And there was six bags of fried chicken left, left over from the Samaritan's Purse and tables of food left over. It was this incredibly abundant time of food and fellowship, rejoicing and worshiping together. And that is who we are called to be, a worshiping people. And that was the climax, the pinnacle of the story, that yes, God was with them, had delivered them, and now they were worshiping on this mountain together. God showed himself to be who he promised to be, and he also shows himself to us to be who he promises to be. Will you pray with me? God, we come hearing and seeing and learning the deep, the deep sea, Lord, of, of goodness, of what it means to worship you, Lord. A little, a, a broader glimpse maybe that we've known before, than I've known before or seen in the Exodus story. And God, we thank you for the way you revealed yourself and the way you still reveal yourself to us by your spirit, through your word, and even new understandings for me this week in the, the solid foundations, Lord, of worship. God, may we here at First Covenant be a people that rejoices and knows and experiences and, and gives in to the deliverance that you want to bring, that we would receive the, the payment for our failures, for our sin, through the blood of Jesus, God, and that we would sing and tell of your amazing deliverance of us, God. May we worship you in, in, in fear, Lord, a reverent awe, that we would be captured by your, by your, mighty, your mighty deeds, your love, and Lord, that we would draw near to you in trust, and that truly your grace, would be what, that, what teaches our heart to fear and that also by that grace you would relieve the things that plague us and fear. 
And God, we pray that we would be a people that lives out our worship outside of these doors, beyond these walls, that we leave here and we let you transform the way we think, the way we live, and that we would be your, your living sacrifices in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our community, and all around, Lord, that we would live that out and that you would be glorified and honored as we live, as we serve. And we thank you, God, that you are a personal God, that you come to us, each one of us, and to us as a body, Lord. You show yourself. You make yourself known to us, Lord. You have loved us. You've carried us, Lord, in so many ways. And, Lord, you've covenanted. And when we have, when we have not kept up our commitments to you, Lord, you have never left us. And you have held on to your promises. We're so thankful and grateful, God, for who you are. And I pray that we would, as John says, that we would grow in worship and in what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. We know we have so much to learn, Lord. We have so much to learn together. We thank you, God, for the way you've revealed yourself through the word and through your people. In Jesus' name, amen.